You guys know you love that clapping. I saw you when he started getting down there. That was good. Happy New Year. Glad to have everyone here worshiping God with us for this year, this decade. Thanks, Abhijit, for the communion. And we also want to welcome our brother Tony Beland from Australia. There he is back there. We were in Australia for the last couple weeks, and I got to see Tony, so you heard me preach there, you heard me preach here, so he follows me around because our pre- the preaching, yeah, uh, so good to have you here, bro, and um, we're going to say a prayer and then dive into our passage this morning, because it's quite a bit of a long text, two chapters, and it's the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. I thought, there's no other way to start the year other than Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> That's just where it landed, okay? We're studying Genesis as a church, so if you're here for the first time this morning, it's not like a fire and brimstone lesson, but this is just where we are in our studying of Genesis, okay? So just to give you a heads up in there. Uh, Let's have a prayer, then turn over your Bibles into Genesis 18, and we'll get started here in a minute. Father, we are grateful to come before you and take communion to reflect on who we are, but also to look forward and proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We also really do ask that you're with uh, the firefighters in Australia and and all the families and um, help us to really be mindful of that, not only of what's going on there, but all over the globe. God, people are hurting and people are crying out. We pray that we're not numb to that, but that we're alert and our eyes are open, our ears are open, and that we present them the gospel, the only true solution for all of the world's problems, God. And I pray as we read your scriptures that convicts me, convicts us, and calls us to become more like Jesus. I pray all this in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's start reading in Genesis chapter 18, and we'll read two chapters, so hang on, and then we'll talk about three points from those two chapters this morning. Starting in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 18, the Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abram looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, if I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed and then go on your way. Now that you have come to your servant. This is ancient Middle Eastern hospitality, and this is how we still should provide hospitality when we meet guests today. Very well, they answered. Do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three seahs of the finest flour and knead it and bake some bread. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds. It's kind of like yogurt. We don't really say, does anybody say curds nowadays? I have some choice curds. All right, Abhijit and Rowena. Very good. Uh, and milk and, and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. While they ate, he, meaning Abraham, stood near them under a tree, kind of like a waiter, as he's entertaining his guest. Where's your wife, Sarah? They asked him. There in the tent, he said. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I am worn out, my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? 
Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why does Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? And that, that could really be a lesson in and of itself. Is anything too, the, the more outlandish the promise, the greater the presence of God. Is anything too hard? Even though you're old, I can still do this. I will return to you at the appointed time next year and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid. So she lied and said, I, I didn't laugh. But he said, yes, you did laugh. <laughs> When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, and this is kind of one of the only times where we have what's called a soliloquy, where we hear, we hear the God kind of thinking to himself. Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. As God is thinking this to himself, then the Lord said to Abraham, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, and their sin so grievous, that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. So at this point, the two men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? This is a bold approach on behalf of Abraham to God. The Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. And we know how this dialogue goes. And Abraham spoke up again. Now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five people? If I find 45, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him. What if only 40 are found there? He said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord be not angry, but let me speak. What if only 30? And then it goes on and on until he windles it down to 10. For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. When the Lord finished speaking with Abraham, he left and Abraham returned home. And the passage continues. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening. And Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. So by this time, he's become more prominent, more influential in the city because he's sitting at the gate. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet, spend the night, and then go on your way early in the morning. It's, you know, they, him and Abraham both provide similar hospitality. We got There's something interesting about Lot. He, he seems to just be going through the motions here. Even though he's doing the right thing, perhaps it's to gain even more influence. And they say, no, they answered, we will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? 
Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, No, no, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. And what's next is just abominable. Look, I I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of our way, they replied. This fellow came here as a foreigner, and now he wants to play the judge? We'll treat you worse than them. And you just got to met what, what they're planning to do to these men is sexual intercourse. And I said, we'll treat you worse than we do them. So this is, this is gruesome stuff that's going on here in Sodom. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. But the men inside reached out, pulled Lot back into the house, and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness, so they could not find the door. Which you got to imagine is, there must have been mass confusion. Because they're right there knocking on the door. And now they're blind. And the the door's kind of right there. But they must have just been so confused and it's so chaotic, they can't even see or reach the door that's right in front of them. The two men said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here, because we're going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against his people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who were pledged to be married to his daughters. He said, Hurry and get out of this place, because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. With the, wife, with, with the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, Hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here. Not the sons-in-law. They're absent now. They, they've lost their chance at redemption. They've lost their chance. They're not included in this. Get your wife, your two daughters who are here, or you'll be swept away when the city is punished. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hand and the hands of his wife, of his two daughters, and led them safely out of the city. For the Lord was merciful to them. As soon as he had brought them out, one of them said, Flee for your lives. Don't look back and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains or you'll be swept away. But Lot said to them, No, my lords, please. Your servants have found favor in your eyes, and you have shown me great kindness to me in sparing my life. But I can't flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me and I'll die. Look, here's a town near enough to run to, and it is small. Let me flee to it. It is very small, isn't it? It's such a weird thing this guy's saying. Then my life will be spared. He said to them, Very well. I will grant this request too. I will not overthrow the town you speak of, but flee there quickly because I cannot do anything until you reach it. That's why the town is called Zoar. By the time Lot reached Zoar, the sun had risen over the land. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, destroying all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back And she became a pillar of salt. And Jesus will reference that later in the Gospels with a very poignant to uh, the Pharisees, I believe it. It says, remember Lot's wife? Don't look back. Early in the morning, Abram got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the plain. And he saw dense smoke rising from the land like smoke from a furnace. 
So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. And then as it, if it wasn't bad enough, it continues on with what, what's been planted in Lot's heart and his daughter's heart as it continues and it ends the chapter with some very gory details which will, which will paint the landscape for a lot of the rest of the New Old Testament. Lot and his two daughters left Zor and settled in the mountains. For he was afraid to stay in Zor. He and his two daughters lived in a cave. One day the older daughter said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is no man around here to give us children, as is the custom over all the earth. Let's get our father to drink wine, and then sleep with him, and preserve our family line through our father. That night they got their father to drink wine. The older daughter went in and slept with him. He was not aware of it when she lay down, or when she got up. The next day, the older daughter said to the younger, Last night I slept with my father. Let's get him to drink wine again tonight. And you go in and sleep with him so we can preserve our family line through our father. So they got their father to drink wine that night also. And the younger daughter went in and slept with him. Again, he was not aware of it when she lay down or when she got up. So both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. The older daughter had a son and she named him Moab. He is the father of the Moabites today. The younger daughter also had a son, and she named him Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites today. I mean, this, this is not the greatest passage to choose to begin the new year. But it's just fall. This, again, this is where it is, okay? And, and we, hey, this stuff is in the Bible. So we've got to figure out what's going on here. And the context is, is Genesis 17. God says, Abraham, I'm going to make my covenant with you and the, the covenant of circumcision and everything is sorted out. And, and then he says, Isaac is going to be the heir to, um, to all of that you have. And so in this, he says, all nations are going to be blessed through you. And then straight after, we have this story of Sodom and Gomorrah where we see Lot being blessed on account of of Abraham. And I, I want to look at three quick points about the character of God from this story. And one is that there's a God becomes a guest in this story. And so in this passage, he physically shows up as a guest to Abraham's tent. You'll see it in verse 2. It says, Three men appear, right? And they greet. Abraham, and Abraham greets them, and then he provides the hospitality, bakes them some, some bread and some, some nice curds, and washes their feet and prepares the meal. And then while they're eating the meal, Abraham, you can, you can almost picture him, you know, kind of standing under the tree as a waiter in a restaurant, like, is there anything else you need? As they're sitting there dining on this meal. And all three of them are eating, right? And then in verse 16, two men leave. Now we know from the, from the story they're angels. And one remains. And, and the passage goes, goes, it's very clear that he's talking with the Lord. This is, this is a really big point because these three people come, two are angels, one is God himself, the two angels are going to go off to Sodom, and then Abram will, will stand there face to face with God. And start having this dialogue with him. And, but it's, it's wild in and of itself that God comes down incognito and is a guest at Abraham's tent. Because at this point, he doesn't even really realize it. He just thinks they're strangers. Hey, come on over and I'll, I'll, I'll help you out along your journey. But it's God himself coming down as a guest. And, and in some, some sense, it's kind of a snapshot what will happen with Jesus 
in the New Testament, when he comes down, kind of incognito, God himself, and is a guest to some degree on earth. That's what we see God starting to do here, even in this story. And so, how many of you have ever stayed at someone's house before? Most likely many of you. And when you stay as a guest, there's this element that you have to accommodate to them. Even if it's family. And and we've all done this, and and there's this, uh, you got to kind of adjust to their rhythms, you got to adjust to their routines of life. And if you stay for like an extended period of time, it seems like it goes through phases. And this isn't just because we came back from holiday and stayed with family, but there's no connection here. But just the, the general idea is that the, the initial, when you stay with somebody, it's like, oh, it's, it's so good to be here. It's so good to have you. And, and everybody's just excited. And, and there's a sense of kind of, this is a holiday. This is good. And then if you're staying for an extended period of time, as time passes, about midway, you're like, uh, uh, you're trying to stay out of their way. Am, am I annoying them? And I don't know where to put this. And it, it you just kind of feel like, am I interrupting their rhythm of life? That's kind of how it goes. And then as, as the time goes on, you feel like, I, I feel like we should go. I feel like I'm just in the way. Or it, maybe you don't feel that. Maybe it's just me and maybe I'm just a weirdo. But, but I think that we all kind of have this, if you stay at a, as, as a guest with somebody, you kind of feel this, I have to adjust to their schedule. I have to adjust to their rhythm. I have to adjust to their routine. And in this passage, and and ultimately in the Bible, that's what God is doing. He's adjusting himself to humanity as a guest. He comes, and this is a colossal adjustment for God to come and be a guest with mankind. And when you look throughout scriptures, he does this in phases. In Exodus chapter 40, that's where God says, my presence will come and dwell in the temple. And so this is an aspect where God says, I'm divine, I'm a supreme deity, but I'm going to become a guest and live among you in the temple. That's Exodus chapter 40. They build the temple and God comes and fills it. Later in the New Testament, John chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Dwelling, the same idea as tabernacle. Jesus comes and says, I'm going to become a guest on earth with humanity. I'm going to set up residence and I'm going to adjust to you. I'm going to accommodate. I'm going to lower myself, as Abhijit mentioned in Philippians 2. And then, to the furthest extent, this is a wild one. In John 14, verse 17, Jesus, referring to the Holy Spirit, says, But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. So the Holy Spirit will become a guest in believers. Now you talk about a massive adjustment. The Holy Spirit coming to live inside you as a guest. And, and so this is what happens, and it's just, just a, a seed of this in this passage where God shows up and he's a guest at Abraham's tent. And I think, man, if, if not that I think like God in any stretch of the imagination, but if I did, I would think I, I would never choose to permanently dwell with humanity. I would just pop in occasionally. Hey, how's it going? Okay, it's good. Hey, I'm getting out of here because humanity is messed up. But he chooses to permanently dwell inside believers as a guest. 
And I think that we, we have to understand this characteristic of God. That there's a reassuring aspect to this. Hey, that God comes as a guest and lives. If you're a believer, if you're a disciple of Jesus and you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, that's very reassuring. You have access to divine truth. Amen. You have access to divine comfort. You have access to divine wisdom. It's kind of like some high and dignitary come and staying at your house. You'd feel honored. You'd feel privileged. You'd feel reassured that they're staying with you. And here we have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. The, the world doesn't have this assurance. The world doesn't have this comfort. And the world doesn't have this kind of direction that we have with the Spirit living inside of us. It's a privilege. He's constantly pointing you in the right direction. Constantly trying to get your attention. Constantly trying to point you to Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing. But you know what? There's also a challenging aspect to the Holy Spirit being a guest in your life. Because His goal is to help you become more like Christ. His influence should become more and more noticeable in our lives. Here's one passage that references that. Colossians 3, verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell in you richly. And that's that same idea of dwelling. That the message of Christ should dwell in each of us in order for Him to make us more like Christ. Now, if Jesus came to your house and took up one room of your house, you would see his influence in that room. I don't, he'd probably write scriptures on the wall. And, you know, you would see his influence, right? And, and that's what this idea is, because this Holy Spirit and the message of Jesus dwells inside of us. It ought to make us look more and more like Christ. But the question is, how much influence does he really have in your life? Often, I think, if you're like myself, I'm influenced more by emotion than by the truth of Jesus' message dwelling in my life. And think about this. We're, we're host to the Holy Spirit. And how many of you have hosted somebody at your house? And they've outstayed their welcome. And, you know, and you kind of give them polite hints to leave. You've all done this. Well, it's getting kind of late. Uh, you know, it's time for me to go home now. Well, actually, I live here. I don't have to go home. Does anybody else need to go home? <laughs> you know, you kind of try to subtly, or you kind of do the, oh, it's getting, it's getting late here. Uh, is anybody else feeling tired? And, or you kind of just kind of hover around the door. Oh, gee, what's everybody going? You know, you've all probably done that, or you've probably looked. You felt that before right? You felt that as a host. But do you feel like that with Jesus living inside of you? I, I, I think it's time for you to go, Jesus. I mean, I'm a little bit uncomfortable now. You stayed a little bit too long. You're trying a little too much influence. You, you can't talk about my finances. You can't talk about my marriage. You can't talk about my relationships. Too much influence. That's the challenging aspect to it. It's reassuring, but it's also challenging that God becomes a guest. That's an incredibly humbling move. But let's let the message of Christ dwell in us richly. It's also another characteristic about God, about God that he's a judge. And, and this trio, these three angels, two angels and God himself, they come for a purpose. It's twofold. What do they do? They say, you're going to have a child next year at this time, and we'll come back. And the second part of their trip is to investigate. 18, at chapter 18, verse 20. 
The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, their sin so grievous, I'll go down and see if what they've done is so bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. This is, this is a wild concept. This is God who possesses all knowledge saying, there's, there's something that has reached my ears. I'm going to come down and see if it's as bad as the cry. I mean, he's willing to come and investigate. He's willing to come and analyze the situation. Does he not know? Well, surely he knows. He, he, is he not aware? Well, surely he's aware. But there's this kind of like generosity involved. I'm going to go down and I'm going to look firsthand myself. I'm going to check it out. I'm not going to just listen to the first cry. I'm not going to rush to a snap judgment. I'm not going to just obliterate the city. I'm going to come and I'm going to check it out. I'm going to investigate. And in this conversation with God, that, that's what Abraham is banking on, isn't he? Won't the judge of all the earth do right? That's, that's his question. You know, far be it from you, if there's just a few righteous people, when in your investigation, if you find somebody righteous, are you going to destroy it? And God says, no, that's actually why I'm here. I'm here to go and check it out. If I find righteous people, I won't. So, I will do right. That's, that's the whole purpose of this trip. I think that's a lot of questions in people's mind today. Is God, can I trust God? Is he going to do the right thing? Is he going to judge properly? And so God is demonstrating his, his, his justice in this passage. I'm going to go down and see if it's as bad as the report I've heard. And when he does, he sends his two angels. And it's not pretty. Verse 4, it says, all the men, both young and old, come to the house. And so this isn't just little pockets of people that are saying, it's pervasive. It's everybody, both young and old. It's not just certain groups. It's not just a few bad apples in Sodom. It's the entire city. And it's not just limited to sexual sin either. Whoops. <laughs> Speaking of weirdos. Ezekiel chapter 37 says this about Sodom. Ezekiel chapter 16, this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them as you have seen. So they weren't just twisted sexually. They were arrogant. They weren't concerned about people that were poor. They weren't concerned about people that were needy. They weren't concerned about people that were um, underprivileged. They didn't hear the cries of the masses. And they come down and check it out. And plus Lot, he's equally as twisted. Who would offer up their daughters like this? And so when they come and do this investigation, it's not like they have to look hard for evidence. I mean, it's pervasive throughout the entire city. There's, there's no redeeming qualities about Sodom. And so the judge of all the earth comes down and says, well, I've, gathered, I've gathered enough evidence that judgment has to be spread on this city. And fire rains down from the Lord. It says it twice in that, from the Lord, from the Lord. This isn't a natural disaster. This is from God judging Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's, it's, it's a big idea for us to have because to understand God, we have to understand judgment. Yeah. And we have to understand He doesn't judge arbitrarily. He makes a pretty comprehensive assessment before He renders a judgment. I've been watching this series on one of the longest manhunts 
in America. And this is the guy, Ted Kaczynski, who's known as the Unabomber. And it was a 17-year manhunt. The longest in U.S. history, maybe the longest in the globe. And so during this time, during these 17 years, they hired 150 full-time FBI investigators to work this case. They were hunting this anonymous killer who would make bombs and set them off at universities and set them off on airplanes. And the victims were random. And so they, they, what they did for these 17 years is they, they would collect and analyze every single bomb fragment. They would put it together and try to get analysts to figure out how is he making these bombs. And, and then they would analyze the victims. Why is he targeting these people? And who are these people? And, and at one point he released a manifesto. And it was called the, the Collapse of Society or something like that. And so they got linguists to, to analyze his manifesto and study it to figure out how does he talk and how does he think? And then they published it in the Washington Post, hoping that someone would read it and say, hey, I know somebody who thinks like that. So they published it in the Washington Post and his own brother read this manifesto and thought, this sounds like my brother. So he, he goes to the FBI and he turns over all of these letters that his brother has written him for the last two decades because he doesn't know where his brother is. And they analyze thousands of letters and thousands of these letters correspond to the exact ideas in the manifesto. I mean, they're gathering t almost 20 years of evidence. And based on this, they find these phrases that appear in both of them and, and, and wrong spellings that appear in both of them. And after all this analysis, they issue a search warrant. And they go to his house and he's built a cabin out in Montana. He lives off the land, no running water, no electricity for almost 20 years. They knock on his door, they pull him out, they find 40,000 articles of letter, 40,000 letters of how to make bombs. They find thousands of documents of the crimes he's committed. They found a live bomb in his, in his cabin, ready to be mailed to the next victim. I mean, they found an overwhelming amount of evidence to convict him and sentence him to prison for life. And, and it made me just think, man, they, they didn't just like, hey, we found a bomb, let's convict this guy. This was a comprehensive analysis of evidence. And, and, and they put him away for life. And, 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 and as you think about the justice system, I know it's imperfect, I know it's flawed, but in some way it's a reflection of God's justice. Because that's what Romans 13 says, where, you know, the, the governing authorities are a reflection of God. And so when we see this, it's, it's they're trying to make an accurate assessment. God is doing that for each and every one of us. I mean, he's got a lifetime of evidence for you and me. And I think that, that there's a frightening aspect to his judgment, but there's also a comforting aspect to his judgment. I mean, it's frightening because God conducts thorough analysis before he judges. We were at the Smiths last night, and he mentioned the scripture. This is scary. Matthew 12, 36. Everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word. Some translations say careless word. They have spoken. For by your words you'll be acquitted, and by your words you'll be condemned. That scares me. I mean, there's a frightening aspect to God's judgment. I mean, we, we, we know some of what each other says, but God knows everything you've said. There's a frightening aspect to that. 2 Corinthians 5, we all got to sit before the judgment seat of Christ so that we receive what is due for us things done, good or bad. That scares me. 
Everybody will appear and say, here's, here's my comprehensive list of evidence. I'll be judged, you'll be judged, and we'll all be judged by that. For those of us in Christ, thank God we have Jesus at our side to help us in that judgment. But there's also a comforting aspect to that. That means nobody goes unpunished. Because when we look out the landscape, we say, hey, what about these people that are oppressing or suppressing these people? And what about these cries? And what about this injustice? They will be judged. And that's comforting. That means we don't have to get all arrogant. It means we don't have to get all bent out of shape and say, what's going on? And we'll say, hey, there will come a time where there is judgment from the judge of all the earth. I think it also challenges me to make sure I don't pass snap judgments. There's a danger in this age we live in with so much information being streamed at our fingertips. I read one article and suddenly I'm a PhD. You know, and we're trying to figure out, is, does, does testosterone peak at age four? And, and I read one article and it says, no, it doesn't. And I say, you know, because we're wondering what's going on with Luke. And he's like, all of a sudden, just like got monstrous amounts of energy. And, and I read one article. And I, nope, doesn't happen. Suddenly, I'm a PhD on, on, on my son. Or Megan and I are having a, a discussion about who snores more, men or women. And I read one article. And I think, I've, I've, I've got a PhD in anatomy. I know what happens. And, and I know you do it too. I know you Google something, and you read one little line, or you read one little article, and you think, no, that's not true. Suddenly you become an expert in the matter, and you make a judgment. And we've got to be careful, because we do that same thing in our relationships. And I hear it done in the fellowship. You hear one little snippet of what happened in interaction, and you think, oh, that's so messed up what they did. We do that. And we've got to be careful, because that's so unlike God. So unlike God. He makes a comprehensive, careful analysis. Lastly, the encouraging bit is Redeemer. This is the encouraging part about this. In, in chapter 19, verse 29, when God destroyed the cities in the plain, he remembered Abraham and brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. When you take a close-up look at this rescue mission that God does, it's insane. Chapter 19, 12 and 13, the angels say, get everybody close to you and get out of here. He's not urgent. Verse 15, they say, hurry, Lot, we're going to destroy this place. Verse 16, he hesitates. Now, if you're about to be destroyed, there's no reason for hesitation. So they grab him. They physically grab him and his wife. And in verse 17, they're they're running out of the city because it's about to be burned. He says, "Uh, I I, I can't go. This this escape route is not a good one. Flat, get out of here. Can can I just stay in this city? Okay. Like he's negotiating to stay closer to where the destruction's happening. And they're still, okay, we won't destroy it until you get there. Man, God was accommodating in this situation. I mean, because of Abraham, he redeems Lot. And it's a crazy redemption. There's grabbing, there's urging. and, And God is so intent on saving Lot. But Lot, not intent on saving anyone else. Really for that matter. His sons-in-law think he's joking. He's offering his daughters for sex. He can't even influence ten people. That's the sad part about this. His daughters and his sons-in-law and his wife, that's five people. And five more. He couldn't influence ten people to save the city. He wasn't concerned about redeeming. He was concerned about becoming like Sodom and Gomorrah. But God was so gracious with him. So gracious with him. This is a guy that lost his life this year. He was one of the Navy SEALs that went in 
to rescue the boys that got trapped in the cave. The soccer team, the Wild Boars in 2018. The coach and 12 boys go into the soccer cave, the, the soccer cave. They go into the cave and they get trapped. And like, man, they enlist hundreds of people to come in and save them. One of them loses their life in the rescue mission. This guy just lost his life recently because he caught a blood infection from the cave. And you think, man, they, they had to go rescue somebody because they made a dumb decision to, to take a group into a cave. And, it's, and now he lost his life. And in some way, that's heroic. But what God does is even more heroic. He comes to you and me, and I know there's times we're not as urgently uh, in, in need of rescue, but, but he's still coming and rescuing us because he's the redeemer. Uh, this is a call for all of us to be like Christ. How is your urgency? I mean, Lot, Lot tries to warn his family, but they think he's joking. What's the level of your influence with your family and your neighborhood, your colleagues and your classmates? Abraham does to Lot what Lot should have done for Sodom. But we see this redeeming nature of God where he, he's, he's quick to help people even when they're not ready. And I praise God that he's like that. And this year we need to be a people who are more urgent about saving a lost world. As we conclude this morning, there are some characteristics about God that st stand out in this story. He is a guest. He's a guest living inside of all believers. Make sure you keep him and not let him outstay his welcome. Let him influence your life. And let the judge of all the earth do all the judging. Let's be more like God and hold back from judgment before we have all of the information. And let's be inspired that God is redemptive. And let us equally be redemptive and help people understand the message of the gospel. Amen. Amen. Yeah.